Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tonzelman, a historian and screenwriter. I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and historical advisor to film and television. And we have a very exciting guest today, uh, who some of you may know from Twitter if you're on social media. Um, today we have, as a possible applicant for the History Film Club, we have Amanda Ray Prescott. Amanda Ray is a freelance journalist and on Twitter she is the dispenser of period drama discourse. She writes about period drama for Den of Geek and for Doctor Who magazine. Uh, and you may also have heard of her on Blacklanders and various Doctor Who podcasts. And she is coming to us very glamorously from New York City. Hello, everyone. Hi. Hi, Amanda. I am great right now, even though right now it is raining here in New York. And we have a very interesting time in America that I'm talking Well, Amanda, wait, I feel like I've known you for a long time. On social media, yeah. It's a thing. I'm like, I've followed both of you on social media for ages now. And I'm like, oh, finally talking to two people I very much appreciate. Here at the History Film Club, we really, really love period dramas. And I know that you really love period dramas. So we're very excited to invite you to our club headquarters. Um, was there one particular drama that sparked your interest in this? I have two. Um, the first was in terms of the finding out that period drama was a thing that I can follow for more than one production. I would say the first one was the Foresight Saga reboot in 2002, three, four, around there. Um, I forgot. I don't know how long it took for between the UK and the US, but... I remember watching it all the way through and getting super, super into the plot and excited about, oh, that Soames is such a jerk, you know, that sort of (laughs) would spark my interest. And then for, at that time, I was probably in between middle and high school. So I floated away, found some other things to get excited about. And then what drew me back into the genre slowly but surely was becoming obsessed with House and finding Hugh Laurie's entire IMDb page and going and seeing he's in a whole bunch of pure drama and British comedy before House and then shortly after that Downton Abbey came around and that's Downton Abbey's really what really started my the Twitter blogging the reviews the informal tweet along the PBS airings of pure drama and then of course being internet savvy, I figured out how to watch some of the period dramas before the United States officially gets them. And <laughs> now, now college, don't encourage our audience to I bad know, things. I, don't <laughs> do I always go back and watch like the American airing, but sometimes I just don't want to see spoilers and I'm Googling things, you know? Or at least yeah. want to understand the spoilers, you know? So then a couple of years ago, Pole Dark came along, changed my life in weird ways in unexpected ways, ended up going to grad school for journalism. And after I graduated, found a quote unquote real job. I started, you know, blogging about my opinions and that led to the more Twitter, more Twitter stuff. And it also led to a interesting discovery. I'm Caribbean American. I identify as black and multiracial and the fandom, everybody who else who likes this thing is white. And I see things that other people don't see in these dramas. Some people clearly did not know a lot or anything about the history of the world. And it wasn't about <laughs> white people. 
and then it took me down a path of I love period drama as a genre, but then I also I love watching film and television. And also was like, okay, I need to become someone who not only knows the history but also can defend it in a sense because some of these productions were going more into becoming more diverse and either through casting or through or through behind the scenes, you know, people color writing, directing, etc. And I'm like. It's very obvious that the industry is going in one direction, and then you have a bunch of people who are watching it, who are probably watching it because they don't want to deal with issues about race or gender or sexual identity or anything like that. They just want the, it the way it was supposedly back then. This is always something with period drama that it's kind of, I mean, obviously it is drama. I mean, all this stuff is kind of has an element of fantasy to it and an you know, element of our projection onto the past. But it's really interesting to me that all the ones you've named as kind of your route into the genre were kind of, they're all British um, and they're all, you know, I mean, Poldark obviously changes things a bit, but like, you know, they're pretty, pretty trad, um, a lot of those. And I mean, it must be, it's kind of fascinating to me that you were watching these shows, you know, as a Caribbean American, and you must have seen something in them that you really connected to. So, so what do you think that was? It's tricky because part of it, me watching PBS as a kid, was just because we didn't have cable, <laughs> not <laughs> well, yeah. and not and not necessarily for economic reasons, but more so, my grandma was just like, I don't want to hear any cursing or sex on television. And that's what it is on cable. So we're not having cable. I was like, okay, so I put up with that you know, until I, you know, got a real job um, when I moved away <laughs> to college and stuff. But I feel like I've always pictured myself wearing those big dresses and walking around like Jane Austen's world, even though, of course, there's a huge, obviously, there's obviously that question of racial disparity, but I've always kind of pictured myself in those different environments, even if the reality would have been more depressing or at least a fantastical the way people envision themselves in like science fiction and stuff that in my head as a kid it was always that kind of it was never like a science fiction or like superhero-esque future for me it was sort of like myself in the past like a better like dressed version of myself just <laughs> <laughs> kind of odd to explain but that's kind of it and I would also say there were some traditional period dramas that formed my opinion. I also, along the same lines, when Mad Men came out in America, it took me a couple seasons to get into it. But when I got into it, it was sort of one of the first period dramas that actively questioned how we view the past. In not in some more so along gender lines than racial per se, but it definitely it definitely shaped how I critique things and how and how I analyze some of the some of the similar period dramas in terms of its time and place and how it presents the 50s and 60s. I, I think, first of all, for a lot of us, the route into period drama is wanting to wear the big dresses. But realistically, if we went back into sort of Jane Austen's time, the number of people who actually were swanning around, you know, mm -hmm. Pemberley in a massive dress was absolutely tiny. I mean, all of us would probably have been scrubbing the vegetables out the back at best, quite honestly. So it's a fantasy for everyone. Um, but I mean... You know, you obviously have been outspoken and, you know, very invested in the idea of bringing more diversity to period drama. Um, and, you know, I think this is a really important issue. It's a very current 
current issue. It's something that has certainly been changing in recent years. But of course, as you're very well aware, there's also a lot of pushback against that. You mentioned from a kind of a traditional audience. So, you know, where, where are we now? What would you say is the situation to looking really at America and the UK, I guess, because obviously plenty of the rest of the world has always made period drama with <laughs> with black and brown people in it because that's who they are. So, yeah. It's looking, well, 2020 is already a weird year in terms of the genre in general, because a lot of what was anticipated has been pushed back, delayed, whatever. But what has come out of period drama in the UK this year has been a strange mix of traditional and not so traditional. Because you have, the, like, for example, you have the Netflix releases like Enola Holmes and Brigadon, who are, well, soon to be Brigadon, that's pushing pushing things in a little bit more of a diverse direction. Then you have The Crown, which is definitely appealing to traditionalists. And then you have shows like the Singapore group. You could tell the point of view is mostly from the white people, characters in, those sh- in that show. But at the same time, the way they questioned colonialism was definitely not seen in other dramas. And the more satirical take on it has not been seen before. So it's sort of playing both, you have Singapore playing both sides. And then you have A Suitable Boy, which is an adaptation of Vikram Seth's novel. It's great in the sense that it was entirely all India cast, but at the same time, Andrew Davies from Sanditon and other and Les Mis and all those other BBC miniseries, he's white, but he's painting in this world of post-war India, which, again, hasn't been seen before. A more progressive view at the same time, though, it's being held back by the fact that the industry probably is not ready for screenwriters of color to write these stories or adapt these books. And in America, we have a we have a bunch of biopics coming out on Netflix and others and on and adaptations of things such as um, the August Wilson saga that's happening on Netflix with uh, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Right now, we're at the point where people want diversity, but right now the industry still has to catch up. And also, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people, there's also a lot of gatekeeping and, tor- and sort of who gets those contracts. The audience is definitely pushing for something, but the thing is, right now, the industry probably, it's probably going to take more than just a year or two to catch up. It's going to take five to 10 years, I'd say. And what are networks willing to put money on or not? And actually, I would say this year is a strange year for the entire industry because with the pandemic, period drama has already been expensive. Filming now new things, <laughs> you have to yeah you have to take back the pandemic in account. And I mean, although there I did see BritBox UK is doing a Black Tudor inspired series, and there's and but then at the same time there's also stars pitch, pitching an Elizabeth the first series, which seems very we've kind of already done that before territory. <laughs> so it's sort of you have the push of diversity and the pull of things that are going to be guaranteed to make us money. There's another Jane Austen movie, I think coming down pike as well i'm like we just had one oh, I mean, <laughs> there's always there's always the pipeline yeah, <laughs> yeah and there's also and then i think hbo max picked up uh ibby's a voice pride which is the uh the recent afro latinx remix of uh, pride Prejudice, which is great i mean if we can get more things like that that'd be awesome because there's a whole bunch of romance and you know popular fiction novels are waiting that are like takeoffs on more diverse takeoffs on classic fiction that could definitely be adapted mm. on both sides of the Atlantic. But Amanda Ray, I mean, one of the things that I think you do so brilliantly well is is you you talk about the way period dramas are discussed as well. It's not just about what's happening on the screen, but also about how we respond to them and how we kind of engage with them. And, you know, I think that's really important because I always 
for like I had a very valuable lesson with the Paul Doc series of the run up to series five where we introduced a black character in series five. And I just thought it was just going to be totally, you know, straightforward. Like it seems so obvious that drama should be writing these kind of stories in and introducing characters, um, you know, uh, like Kitty Despard in series five. And yet people were so surprised that this was something that Polduck would do. And that actually I felt I was so naive that I was taken aback by how that was seen as, as remarkable because it, it didn't feel remarkable. It didn't seem like it was going to be an unexpected shift in the narrative, but actually the way, you know, some people responded to it and some of the newspapers responded to it was as though Polduck had got incredibly, you know, kind of modern in its writing, which it absolutely hadn't. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to look at audience response that reminds us actually just how much more work there is to do. The fact that people find these characters surprising or unsettling in terms of the vision of the past, um, you know, is is really, yeah, telling <laughs> about how much distance there still is for us to cover. I was, my reaction to Paul Dark season five, I mean, at first, I mean, getting past the, like, seeing the PR release and being like, oh my God, I'm finally being represented on my favorite show, to looking around fandom noticing that people are angry people are basically saying i quit on the show then you have the folks who are like well my favorite character now gets less screen time because of this and uh, it wasn't in the book winston graham would have done that to even people as far as oh Pete, paul dark is too politically correct now and i'm like for y'all who read the books yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the other books were basically introducing things that people didn't really talk about in history. But of course, there's fictional characters involved, and now we're talking about it. Like the entire time period Full Dark is taking place in was not featured in history books often. Like people kind of skip, like there's like 10 or 12 years yeah. or so that get yeah. fall into gap. It's always we America, you know, American law and Britain lost, and then next uh, it's Napoleon. I'm like, there's 10 years there that y'all forgot. And even within the Napoleonic War, a lot of people just rush to the end because there's a whole lot of stuff in the middle that nobody talks about. <laughs> yeah. so I mean, it goes on of, a bit. <laughs> exactly. And even in America, like that period of history, we go, we go from, you know, founding fathers, everything mentioned in Hamilton, to, oh, uh, the White House burned when the war in And it's sort of the same thing. It's like people are just like, whatever, about that 10 years or so. So, it, I mean, for me, it was really that we they told a new story but of course the problem with a lot of pure dramas like Cold Arc which is something that can't always be controlled is that when the marketing comes out you don't know how many how much people know about the history of it because people are not going to go out especially when you're talking about things that are movies from you know the UK to US people may not go out and buy the, the biography or read the scholarly article that's connected to explain this new thing you're bringing in and a lot of the negative pushback in fandom, especially on diverse topics, it's because people did not read, they didn't do their homework before sitting down in front of Netflix or whatever. And the profoundly negative reaction to Kitty Desk in particular was definitely partially because people felt their character, the characters are getting um, screen time shortened. And also, wait, Paul Dark was just about, you know, a bunch of, it was just the rich and the poor. Wait, you're bringing in slavery into this? Wait, why do we care about people getting the right to vote in, like, you know, wherever that comes from? What? Like, what do you mean that's connected? I thought that was <laughs> yeah. something different. 
I'm like, yeah, it's not Honduras and all these other colonies that Britain had. Like all all of that stuff is interconnected just because you're only seeing one. Again, a lot of the, and I think that's where a lot of disconnect from. Also, too, people depending on the age of the viewer, they've learned a, they've learned about this history from places that were clearly obscuring. They were clearly whitewashed history. Like they they learned inaccurate history. So it's how do you mm. snap people out of that? Like their yeah. expectations yeah. and their perceptions are inherently and I mean, wrong. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, it's <more laughs> misguided. So a lot of what I do when I talk about period drama, it's not just how I felt about different plots. It's sort of we have to change the way we're thinking about these issues. And there's you read the past and you figure out well, there's room for creative interpretation an extent but it is also we have to fix our current mentality in order to fully accept everything in the past good and bad and how different people we think bring in modern issues in history really have always been there racism has always existed um lgbtq issues always existed all the stuff is that people think is just happening now in feminist issues though there's all those issues that are still there in the past it's a matter of figuring out what the terms were figuring out how different groups interact or whatever the situation is then it affects what we see on the screen yeah i mean i still i still definitely encounter some of the prejudice that kind of you know there's a belief somewhere out there that black people were invented in 1920 you know, sex was invented in 1964. <laughs> Gay people definitely did not exist till at least the 1980s. You know, I yeah. mean, yeah. This, I'm afraid this is, you know, and, and a lot of people, a lot of the period drama audience, I mean, you know, there absolutely are people who want, you know, interesting, creative, you know, challenging period drama. But there's also people who want, they don't want to be challenged. They want to be given their comfy slippers TV and be told what they you know a story that they already feel they know it's fascinating to see this kind of changing but also seeing that you know trad shows are still being made as well you're someone who's so plugged into all of this now you know I'm not asking you to screenwrite at this point um, although I'm sure it'd be awesome if you did but what would you love to see on screen you know in the next few years I'm sure you have one tucked away somewhere (laughs) it's funny I'm really really terrible at creative writing um (laughs) <laughs> but what I would like to see over the next five years is either I would work toward adapting recent historical fiction written by Black or other POC authors. And some of that could be romance because there's a lot of, or things that are labeled romance but may not just be pure romantic discussion. But that would be kind of where I'd work toward where where it's not just, you know, biopics, because it's so easy to just, okay, obviously biopics would be a good thing, but I've, that's probably where I would go, because people have a little bit more creativity with fictional writing to change the narratives that way, versus trying to create diversity on a biopic of, like, for example, somebody who's already been established in history as white, or even a lot of the um, African-American and black British figures where racism flavoring colonialism was already part of that conversation and then people are like well i don't want to watch something that's depressing or it's going to be all about our struggle why i want to watch something fun that's where fiction can come in so people can get the escapism but they also get the different lens on the situation i'm obsessed with the 18th century in particular so i would love to see i mean i would love to see anybody with you know 18th century historical fiction or 
or even biopics on that era and on that era. Two things in particular, although it kind of breaks my pattern of of wanting more than just struggle stories, Phyllis Wheatley mm-hmm. could be a decent biopic kind of thing. Also, the Haitian Revolution. Oh yeah, I know. Although both of those are definitely like you know places of focus, but again, yeah. I feel like Caribbean history in general is such a black hole, or any of anything that's focusing on the Caribbean. Because I feel like even in America, I mean, so many of us come from there, but we rarely see a history on the screen. And uh, I mean, although the long song ha- is now only coming to New the United States in like January, February, like it. That's pretty much our one shot of it. It's literally our one shot of Caribbean history. It's, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I'm like, that's all. Our, that's it. <laughs> and I've I've wanted for years to see the Haitian Revolution done. I really agree with you. I think it's one of the most incredibly dramatic, extraordinary stories in history. And you know, mm-hmm. still not particularly widely known outside people who are quite obsessed with history. And you know, it's it would be completely fantastic. I think now that would have to be like a Netflix multi part series. I don't think a movie could necessarily even do that justice there's so many big characters but I mean wow I would pitch it but to be honest I'm the wrong person to pitch it I'd love to see a Haitian writer pitch it um not not some Danny white Glover woman has supposedly <laughs> been pitching it but it's been like 20 years yeah I've heard that too I mean it's so I think you know the politics of it are still so incredibly raw especially perhaps in the US you know where there is that kind of history of you know slavery and everything I mean obviously there's also history of slavery in the UK not to whitewash that in any way but you know there's a the feelings are so strong around it I mean you know Mm -hmm. even in the time when it was when the Haitian revolution was happening there were great fears about it spreading to Louisiana um, and spreading to other parts of the the southern US Um, and you know you almost feel like now there's still everyone's too frightened to tell this story you know definitely and also too people don't i mean right now this time with all these protests i'm not sure if people want to necessarily watch something along those lines but it's definitely something i've kind of thought circled back to multiple times um thinking about like that could definitely be a high stakes drama um in terms of things that are more you know I would just say any of these eras where we have so many dramas that are like only one point of view, I would definitely just go in there and try to flip it around. Like, especially, I mean, sure. I mean, the 18th century is full of that. And I also say a lot of what we know about the Reeves era is only one side at this point because of how many Jane Austen in either <laughs> directly direct adaptations or inspired by is like, we got to have, Something else has to be remixed in there. Um, I've, I'm assuming Burkett is going to do a bunch of that, but there's also a lot of fictional elements that as well. So that'd be, but we'd love to do that for Victorian era too. Edwardian, just go all the way down the line and figure out how we can remix the current narrative. Well, I would definitely help support a Phyllis Wheatley pitch because I think she's <laughs> a fascinating character. She's the first black published um, author. Um, and as you know, she's writing from a kind of malicious slave narrative perspective. But you should look out in period dramas I've worked on for Phyllis Wheatley references. 
<laughs> because we keep trying to drop her in every so often. Um, yeah. Amanda Ray, that's really fascinating. Thank you very much for your thoughts on this. Um, now, when people apply for the History Film Club, we like to ask them to recommend one very, very favourite TV or film production to add to our club library. Um, so I was wondering what you would like to nominate. Ooh, I'm going to have a couple choices depending on who else has applied. Um, <laughs> first, I want to recommend in terms of film, Bell by uh, the Amna Asante film of, from 2013. Right now, Bell seems to be writ large sort of the best UK-based attempt at reframing historical narratives in terms of not only biopics, in terms of happy endings for characters of color and real-life history. That Ozazel story is amazing and of course, the movie did, you know, condense some details a bit and budged a little bit, but it's such a, it's a great, it's a fantastic production. And of course, you know, Amna Asante's directing is wonderful and Guzman Vatharoff, who consistently gets ignored by Hollywood, even though she's done so much fantastic work throughout pure drama and not pure drama at the same time. It's so much, I have to, I have to nominate Bill um, for, for sure. And in terms of tv nominations into the library i'm actually going to throw one of my all-time faves into the mix uh and it's i'm throwing it back a bit it's one of those pure dramas that was people were raving about it when it came on but then it kind of fell off the like radar because it was one of those like great but canceled too soon sort of things the hour Mm. Yeah, this one I got way, way obsessed with <laughs> back in like, 2011, 2012. Like I spent, <laughs> I even remembered for the petitions for renewal campaign that totally fell off the and We were all like sending lamps to the BBC. It was great. I mean, it informed my life in a different way than you'd expect because the main character, since the characters were, you know, BBC investigative journalists in the late 50s, like, I was like, you know what, in journalism school, I want to try to do what they do. Of course, it didn't quite end up as I planned, but at least I did learn how to, right? Um, I wasn't finding communists, but, you know, <laughs> or uh, mob conspiracies. But, you know, you, you think of sometimes those pop culture, you know, inspirations do lead to actual careers. So that's one of my, it's my uh, TV nomination. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Those are great. I'd forgotten about the hour, but I loved it actually as well. I'd kind of forgotten about it, but it was brilliant. And I loved all that walking around the old BBC site, everyone smoking and everything, you know, it was Mm -hmm. sort of like, um, yeah, this old BBC world, wasn't it? It was fabulous. It was. And of course, and of course, some people wouldn't expect me to like something like that. But if you think about it, like, it ran almost around the same time as Mad Men, but it, it sort of, it left if they had a third or fourth season, I'm sure they would have gone into exploring because there was an immigration plot line, a subplot line in the second season. I'm sure they would have gone further into like breaking what we would normally see from a 19, you know, 50s or 60s drama. So that would be. Yeah, yeah it was. It was the kind of scruffy and Mad Men, the British take on Mad Men. <laughs> everyone was like not Kinda. quite so well dressed or quite so glamorous, Dodgy bit dysfunctional, tea. and smokes continuously. It was. Yeah, it was like the British <laughs> take on Mad Men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Amanda Ray, we also um, always ask the difficult question um, of our mm-hmm. guests of trying to nominate something to ban from the history film club. So it could be a pet hate or just something that really gets your goat when you're watching period dramas. What, what would you suggest we should ban? 
so I have two answers for this one. Let's start with the easy one. I want to ban from film, especially film, because TV, I don't think, has this problem as much. I want to ban the people who make the corsets for the actresses. They have no training in making corsets for historical reenacting. And here's why. A lot of the complaints, I see a lot of actresses complaining about how they hurt. Like, I barely ate today in interviews, or it's so tight, or clearly their techniques are are not great. They're not really wearing stuff that's fitting them, or they're using Victorian tight lacing in, in like, 18th century or whatever errors they're doing. Clearly, there's a disconnect here between... Because the reenactors, they could sit in these costumes for 14, in these, like, you know, courses 14 hours a day, and they're fine, but the actresses can't. I mean, granted, there's a difference in motion, but it seems like there's a disconnect in, like, skill and expertise and what's on the film set, to me. I, I kind of go back and forth on complaining about costumes, but it seems like that one would be the one that I think even the most diehard, like, sticklers for costume design would agree with because that <laughs> might make everybody happy <laughs> certainly if they had to wear them for half an hour yeah exactly they would be comfortable and actually fitting their size instead of <laughs> i am so happy to ban that it drives me mad to see actresses <laughs> uncomfortable and kind of being made to be extra thin i'm like we don't have to do it this way guys like we can just go around and release the corset <laughs> like make them comfortable um you know in the 18th century people could wear them for days and not complain i've never read a letter where someone's complained about their corset if it's purpose made mm -hmm. so yeah you're absolutely right and i want to be the advice that just goes around snipping the stays you know just release the women <laughs> like, oh, yeah. liberation <laughs> liberation <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Second thing I want to ban is lazy or you didn't even try it <laughs> things with diver with um diversity related issues. Um like it's 2020. Can y'all not try to be so blatant with the all white cast and all white crew uh pitches? Yeah, it's getting kind of on my nerves. <laughs> it's getting on it's getting on all everybody's nerves, but in particular, it's more of a film issue, I think, than because, of course, with film, they're trying to, like, you know, get as wide of audience as possible. And there's all these metrics and things that that's definitely a big thing I want to ban. But I want to ban in particular, because it's a huge topic. I want to ban in particular the all-white classic novel adaptations, at least for, like, a 10-year ban. Get some new perspective. Yeah. <laughs> like, a 10-year ban, yeah. <laughs> a 10-year ban on, like, don't pitch Dickens unless you figured out some way to switch things. Don't pitch, especially not this often, or don't pitch Elizabeth Gaskell. Any of those, like, famous authors of each era, like, please, just little women. Like, come on. How many little women have there been? Don't pitch another. Like, really, we don't need it. <laughs> that's one of the anyway. repeat offenders in America I'm like please don't like, I think increasing yeah. diversity behind the camera is is key as well because you know exactly. we do see more on screen diversity but actually in terms of what's happening behind the scenes in the creative input you know there's a lot of work still to do exactly yeah, and like it shows in things especially for example because just because you have people in front of the camera if you're not thinking about implications or you're not thinking about your characters and what they're doing to the characters of color it shows especially in debates in random like for example sanderson where it was very obvious that nobody black consulted on georgiana yeah 
beyond what was in the history books. I, I'm also on board with this this plan. And I'd also say that, yeah, I mean, more people of colour behind the cameras and in different positions, but also not, you know, not limiting them to, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, Amanda Ray, and I really agree with it, not constantly being asked to tell stories of black trauma. You know, I mean, first of all, it should be perfectly possible to also tell stories of black joy. Um, mm. But also, you know, if why can't for instance i mean i've i've said before i mean i wrote a film about churchill i would be so so interested to see a churchill biopic written by somebody from india you know who would have a different perspective why shouldn't they why you know they can write any stories they want um we need to really open our minds to you know people being able to write in different ways and being allowed to approach whatever subjects they they like i think so we ban all forms of restriction corset restriction <laughs> and ghastly <laughs> like, creative restriction <laughs> sounding pretty good <laughs> well i think yeah. i mean on the strength of this amanda ray i think i think we're very happy to welcome you to the history of film club and accept your membership Yay! well done congratulations <laughs> Woo! thank you am i the um, first american advocate by the way <laughs> you actually are so it is a joy to have you um, now, it is traditional that we uh, offer to get you a yes. drink from the History Film Club bar. Um, so so what do you prefer to drink from the History Film Club bar? All right. I, I'm very lazy with my cocktails, so I'm going to ask for a Moscow Mule. Oh, I think that's rather classy. Yes, I'm sure we can mix you up with one of those. <laughs> and bring in Russian history next time for that, too. <laughs> Please not war and peace. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Thank you very much, Amanda Ray Prescott, for appearing on the History Film Club. We're very delighted to welcome you to the club. Um, and thank you for listening. Goodbye. You've been listening to the History Film Club with Alex Hontunzelman, Hannah Gregg and Amanda Ray Prescott. It was produced by Nat Tapley for Gloaming Productions.